You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So today, if you're visiting with us, today is Racial Healing Sunday. Uh, we are a church that follows the Christian calendar, and then we are a church who acknowledges various days of the year in our um, United States of America calendar, like people do Father's Day and Mother's Day and that kind of thing. And for us, uh, this particular weekend, for the last few years, um, is Racial Healing Sunday. Um, and that is because, come Tuesday, is the day of National Day of Racial Healing, um, which we'll talk about here momentarily. But in order to do that, I want to set our hearts and minds toward what Scripture invites us to imagine uh, in this kind of conversation. And so it's going to seem kind of random. There, the verses that I offer are not going to be on the screen for you. They're going to be, um, so you'll need to open up your scripture if you can. But I'll have all these notes posted for you on Church Center um, by the evening of tonight. So from the Hebrew scriptures of 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 24. The king of Assyria transported groups of people from Babylon, Kuta, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharim and resettled them in the towns of Samaria. Replacing the people of Israel, they took possession of Samaria, lived and lived in its towns. That's our opening verse. Encouraging, huh? Sounds very informative. Here's kind of where we're going. After Judah was defeated and occupied when Assyria became the world empire, the king of Syria sends foreign armies, or foreign tribes, sorry, foreign tribes who, if you read the text, do not know the fear of the Lord, into Samaria to assimilate with the Israelites. That's what empires do when they begin to occupy other lands, especially back then, is that in order to assimilate the lands and enculturate, that's the $10 word, in other words, make their own culture out of existing peoples, they'll send their own peoples into these lands, marry, commingle, have babies, make families, so that the newer generations that come up look like the empire's culture. Are you with me? Well, these were Israelites. They have a history that dates back to Jacob and Jacob's well. But now they are becoming what we would call a mixed-raced people. They are ethnically mixed. They are what we might call biracial. By the time generations after generations move forward. And this Samaritan people who were a biracial people of mixed ethnicity became considered by Israelites as a lesser people. But they also considered Israelites a lesser people than them. See, because Samaritans believed that they had the true law of God. They believed that their temple that they had built, funded by Alexander the Great, was the temple to uphold true religion. Well, Israel believed the same thing. Well, that's problematic. This racial divide was profound, and it led to all sorts of racial harms and racial hurts committed between these two peoples. Matter of fact, just to ground this in history for us, if you'll bear with me for a nerd moment, uh, there's, there's a text from an ancient Jewish sacred text called the Mishnah. Everybody say Mishnah. Now, this is the first major written collection of the Jewish oral traditions that became known as the Oral Torah. All that simply means is that this was an authoritative text among the Israelite people that predates Jesus by generations. And this is what one of the texts says. It's kind of within an anecdote, within a story. Rabbi Eliezer used to say, whoever eats bread baked by Samaritans is like one who eats the flesh of a pig. What that was simply teaching is that it's got to be understood. Jews are not to hang out with Samaritans. You are not to associate. Matter of fact, generations later, a former Jewish military leader and Jewish historian named Josephus, who lived near the time of Jesus, born around 37 Common Era, so what you might say A.D., um, what historians would say, common era. Uh, Josephus wrote this uh, story that tells us of a time when the Samaritans came into Israel to the temple courts during Passover and scattered human bones. 
which was a profound desecration of that place. So they didn't get along. Matter of fact, so much so that Ben Sirah, who was a well-respected Jewish scribe and writer within the Jewish tradition, who came comes to us around second uh, century BC, um, wrote this, and hear this out. There are two nations that my soul detests. The third is not a nation at all. The inhabitants of Seir and the Philistines and the stupid nation that lives in Shechem. Who is he referring to in Shechem? The Samaritans. That's the hatred. That's the racial animosity that exists between the two groups. And I bet some of us have been raised up to believe that you shouldn't talk about racism and racial justice in church because that's political. Well, I guess Jesus wouldn't be welcomed into some of our churches because he talked about it. He just talked about it in terms that they would know. And one of the ways he talked about it was in a story he told that you might have heard as the parable of the good Samaritan. Now you see why that's so provocative. See, Jesus is all about epiphany. He's all about new revelations. So in Luke chapter 10, he invites an epiphany. One day, verse 25, one day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Pause. When Jews talk about eternal life, they're not talking about heaven. When Jews talk about eternal life, they understood the afterlife as to be in this life, we're in one plane. And as we go on to the fathers of our faith, we go to another plane. And so when they talk about eternal life, they are saying, how do we get some of that there here? How do we get the fullness of shalom that waits, that awaits for us when we go to the fathers into our life now? They're not asking Jesus, how do we go to heaven when we die? We ask that and we read that into the text. That is not the language of the actual text to the audience. So he asked him, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, right. Do this and you'll live. In other words, do that. And the abundance of shalom and life that you long for will break into your life now. The man, wanting to justify his actions, asked Jesus another question. And then who is my neighbor? Now we can talk about that a lot. We've talked about that a lot, but we won't today. Jesus replies then with a story. Jesus doesn't answer. Remember, a lot of times when he asks Jesus a direct question, he doesn't give a direct answer. Some of us would be real impatient with Jesus, wouldn't we? <laughs> Jesus replies with a story. A Jewish man, everybody say Jewish man, Jewish. was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A Levite which is a temple assistant, walked over and looked at him lying there. But he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged him. Then he put the man on his donkey and took him in to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. So Jesus asks, now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Now pause. I want you to notice Jesus flips the question in his question. The man asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, who was being a good neighbor? See the difference? By the way, I got that from Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King in his extraordinary sermon on the sermon on the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. Anytime I come up to Dr. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's day, 
in the weekend before, I always think of this parable, always. And so the man replies, well, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said, what? Yes, so go and do the same. Go and do likewise. So, some historical note. I have some colleagues who have walked from Jerusalem to Jericho, and they tell me that it is about a mile high in elevation, and it's about an 18-mile trek of switchback roads. Everybody know what a switchback road is? It's this thing. And so as you walk on the switchback road down, you can see plenty down. And it's not like a wilderness. It's like a dry, dusty, parched kind of brown, red-brown kind of place. But there's lots of place to hide. And this switchback road going down about a mile, 18 miles down, 18 mile, one mile in elevation, 18 miles down, allows you to have a view. And so if you're walking down and there's a man lying on the side of the road or in the road way down yonder, as my grandma used to say, you would see that there's an object in the road. And as you walked farther and farther down that road and closer and closer to that object, you'd be able to tell that that object is a man. Now, Jesus tells us this is a Jewish man. Jesus tells us this man is stripped naked. Where's Kathy Poden? To Kathy, I said naked, right? Naked. Kathy used to get on to me because I used to say naked because I'm from South Georgia. And she's an English teacher. She's like, Fred, it's naked. Say it with me, Fred. Say it. Which is really awkward to have a conversation about. But obviously, I talk about these things a lot. I don't know why. It's somewhere in the sermons, I guess. But it is naked. I thought about you all first. I'm like, I kept saying, I'm hearing Kathy. Say it. Say nay, nay. So he's, he's naked on the road, right? And they see him there. See, I'm learning from you. All right, thank you, thank you, thank you. And it's this isolated terrain, and you can see him there. And so when you read the story, you have to read the story like the hearers would hear it. All the hearers are Jewish. So listen to the story as the hearers hear it. Jesus tells them it's a Jewish man who's naked, beat half dead. So they know he's Jewish. But in the story, the priest that's walking doesn't know he's Jewish. You with me? The priest doesn't know in the story. The hearers know, but the priest doesn't. So the priest is walking down, looking out, looking up, starts to see that it's a, it's, a naked, it's a naked man who may be dead. And the priest now, seeing him, has to make a decision long before he ever gets there. Are you with me? See, that would preach in and of itself, but we're not going to talk about that. But he goes down there, and he sees that naked man. Now, the only thing you're going to be able to tell with a naked man laying on the side of the road is whether or not he's Gentile or Jewish. But before you get there, you don't even know. And in order to tell that, you're going to have to get pretty close. Because the only way... Y'all, the only way, I mean, that's what I mean, that's the context. The only way, um, everybody repent. The only way that you're going to know a person by their ethnicity in that context is going to be through their dialect and their clothing. You with me? Because contrary to our imagination, people in the Bible days were not white. Okay, they were olive-colored skin, brown skin to black skin. As a matter of fact, sidebar, in Acts 21, 22, or 23, somewhere in the 20s of Acts, you'll hear a story, and it's very, very, like two verses in the Bible, where a Roman centurion sees Paul, and he asks Paul, he says, hey, man, you speak Greek. He's like, yeah. He said, are you the Egyptian that tried to do the overthrow of the government? Now, let me ask you something. If Paul was the white dude that you see on the covers of the books that you see, would he be mistaken as an Egyptian? I don't think so. So that being said, the only way you really know a person's ethnicity in that day is through the garbs and through the accent and the dialect. Well, a naked man's not wearing clothes, right? And a man who's beaten half dead isn't talking. So you're not going to know exactly what kind of person he may be ethnically, what his ethnic roots are. And there are implications as to why or why not the priest had to carry on, but we're not going to talk about that. But when the priest is mentioned in Jesus' story, could you imagine the hearers going, yes, the providence of God to save God's countrymen. A priest comes to save the day. And then Jesus says, and he walks on, and they're like, oh. And then maybe they go, well, you know, it could have been dead, unclean, can't do that. We'll let the priest off with a pass. But then Jesus says, but the temple assistant comes. And they're like, oh, I see what you're doing, Jesus. You're not making the priest the hero. You're making the assistant of the priest the hero. I see you, Jesus. That's very Jesus of you. And then Jesus says, and he walks over and looks down upon the man. And they're like, yes, finally, the providence of God to save God's countrymen. 
And the priest walks over to the other side. And they're like, oh, so a priest and a Levite. Sounds like a joke, right? A priest and a Levite and a Samaritan walking in a bar. And then Jesus says, a Samaritan. And could you imagine what the Jewish hearers are thinking now? Right, wait a minute. This is offensive. How dare Jesus be offensive? And how dare Jesus bring up a people with whom we have significant racial and religious hostility? Surely he's not going to let that person be the hero of the story. And so Jesus does. And makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. Although Jesus chooses this Samaritan to be the hero of the story, and although Jesus is answering a question of neighborliness, of all the illustrations Jesus chooses to talk about being a good neighbor, he chooses one that has to do with racial justice and healing. Literally healing, by the way. Jesus chooses a Samaritan to rescue the Jewish man. A Samaritan to risk his own life by taking the Jewish man into Jewish territory to be cared for at the inn. A Samaritan who hands the innkeeper a blank check to pay for whatever services he needs. A Samaritan who becomes the good neighbor, the peacemaker, the healing hands of the story in this text. Jesus seems to mean to provoke an epiphany. As revealing as it is, it is shocking and frankly, offensive. But maybe it's because Jesus knows that there are generations of racial divide between these two groups. And I imagine there are some people hearing Jesus' words and they're saying to themselves, Jesus, just let the past be in the past. Let sleeping dogs lie and leave it be. Why stir things up with this parable? They keep to themselves and we keep to ourselves. Why are you bringing it up? But Jesus knows as the liberator and creator of all things that, I imagine, because he knows all things, that there's generational impact. There's generational impact in Samaritans and Jews. That hatred is inherited, consciously or subconsciously. It's conditioning. Not just that. Jesus knows our human tendency to create racial divides and social classes. Jesus knows how we are a tribal people who remain subtly and subconsciously tempted to think more of those who look like us than those who do not. And maybe more than anything else, Jesus as creator and liberator of all nations, tribes, and tongues knows that this will be the very thing that plagues humanity for the entire world's existence until Jesus sets all things right once and for all. Because any of us who know history know that the overtaking of peoples and the overtaking of lands is either rooted in some form of national expansion of believing one's ethnicity or nation is greater than every other nation or greater, or race, or its religion. That should not be up for dispute, even in an alternative fact nation where we are certainly making our own history disputable. It wasn't a dispute there. It was just offensive. But in the words of someone who was much smarter than me, who I do not know who they were, the truth will set you free, but first it will make you miserable. And so it's important that if we're to heal, we must allow the Holy Spirit to open up some wounds so that those which we have ignored that have festered on their own can actually receive the treatment they actually deserve these wounds, so that we can heal. And so today, on this Racial Healing Sunday, I thought, who is a healer in this community? Who's a change maker? Who's a movement maker? Who is somebody who speaks with boldness and authority, but with humility and gentleness? Who is somebody who will tell the truth, but who does so in a way that they build bigger tables instead of walls? that there's an invitation to their speech. And the only person, the only person I could think of was Laura Hill because she embodies all of those things to me.
I first met Laura by looking at her picture in a magazine called Williamsburg Neighbor Magazine. And I'm like, who is this? And then it said, coming to the table, a historic triangle, a chapter of a national organization wanting to build bigger tables and bring the sons and daughters of enslaved and enslavers to the table to bring about what Dr. King talked about, beloved community. And I thought, who is this person and what is this table? I have been doing work in racial justice for 13, well, at that time, I don't know how many years, in this community. And ever since, I started walking with people out of social displacement, sidebar, just so you know, the reason why I am so committed to this concept of subverting racialized cultural narratives and systems and bringing about healing and racial injustice isn't just because I am a white man who is a son of enslavers, but it is because when I was walking with men and women out of social displacement and homelessness when I was a stockbroker and started trying to ask the question, why are we having homeless people in the richest nation in the world? I started finding out that the history behind it all is racialized cultural systems making. And I was like, oh, that's the problem. The American caste system that is categorized and organized based upon one's skin. And I started seeing that's the root. Some is called the original sin. And so I know I don't always have the, sh the softest edges about me. And I thought, who will? It's got to be Sister Laura Hill. So I sent her an email. Come on, Laura. I sent her an email, and I said, hey, I want to be a part of coming to the table to learn and to be a part of this conversation. Can I come? And, of course, she was like, of course you can come. Now, I'm going to steal her thunder a little bit. I actually ended up saying in the email that I'll do anything if you'll let me be a part of this. And when you say something to Laura, she takes you literally. And so for the last several years, my anything has been anything. And she reminds me, you did say you'll do anything, and I have to say, yes, I did anything. After spending time and sharing in this ministry with Laura, she asked me and several other leaders if we'd be willing to join her in launching a new initiative, a 501c3 nonprofit called Virginia Racial Healing Institute. And so we said, absolutely, we will. And so I wanted Laura to tell us a little bit about that today because a lot of times when we talk about racial injustice and racial justice, we don't talk enough about the possibility and the potential of healing. And last I checked, the church is supposed to be instruments of peace, which includes us to be healers, right? So let's talk about healing. Laura, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit to this body? By the way, she is obviously a member of our church. She is also our church historian um, and our beloved sister, but why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, well, first of all, good morning. <laughs> Again, I'm Laura Hill, and I write the Building a Bigger Table column for the Virginia Gazette. An award-winning column, might I add. <laughs> I also am the founder of Coming to the Table Historic Triangle, which is a chapter of a national racial reconciliation organization. And as Fred said, um, a couple of years ago, several of the leaders of the Coming to the Table Historic Triangle Group, we started the Virginia Racial Healing Institute. Now, why would we start another organization? We already had one that kept us very busy. Well, it was because Coming to the Table focuses on bringing together the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners. It's based on fulfilling the dream of Dr. Martin Luther King. And during his I Have a Dream speech, he said, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners would come to the table and sit down at the table of brotherhood. So that is the impetus for coming to the table. But we noticed, you know, during the coronavirus pandemic, we were witnessing Asian hate. Um, there's anti-Semitism and all different forms of racial hatred. And we wanted to address healing um, with those groups as well. 
So we went to the leaders of coming to the table and we did a switcheroo. <laughs> we started the Virginia Racial Healing Institute and coming to the table, Historic Triangle became one of our many programs. In addition to having our coming to the table monthly meetings where people come together and have dialogue, discuss racial issues. We also have a, a racial healing book club and a faith-based racial reconciliation group called Be the Bridge. And we also sponsor community events such as the National Day of Racial Healing, which is coming up on Tuesday. And we're just really excited because our programs are sponsored through grants. So we're able to make these programs free to the community. So there are no barriers. Anyone can come as long as you can get a ticket. Now this event sold out on Tuesday. <laughs> so we, had, we sold 125 tickets Plus, we have 12 people on the waiting list, 13 including Rob. <laughs> just again. But, um, yeah, we, we just saw a need to do more. Um, and so that's, that's why we started the Virginia Racial Healing Institute. And our mission is to help people and the community, people and communities, to heal from the legacies of slavery. So what are the legacies of slavery? Well, <laughs> Laura asked me this in the first gathering and I gave her a rather complicated answer and she told me it was a complicated answer and gave a much simpler answer. So not to take her thunder, I'm gonna give the complicated answer again. But legacies of slavery coming from a trauma training standpoint is called legacies and aftermath. And so when males, when African males were ripped from families and children were ripped from mothers' arms in order to perpetuate the slave, the enslavement of these neighbors for free labor, you have now generations of African Americans who do not know their ancestral heritage, who have an end to their family tree which impacts the story that is told and how they understand themselves, not to mention the legacies of slavery that go all the way down to things like Jim Crow. And so, Laura will now say, that's rather complicated, Fred. I will <laughs> tell it in a different way, Laura. Well, actually, it's less complicated than... Than what I did the, in first gathering. Look at me, gathering. I'm learning. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we always try to keep it simple. So... When we think of slavery, we think of slavery as a person, um, a person who died, because we know that slavery was abolished um, in America in 1861. But slavery, slavery died, but slavery has descendants. It's mm. just like my mom passed in October but I'm still here. <laughs> she has about 50 descendants. And that's how slavery is. Slavery was abolished and died, but slavery's descendants are alive and well, and those descendants include white supremacy, racial hatred, bigotry, racial discrimination, racial violence. And we are still dealing with slavery descendants. So there, there is a need for healing. Right. And when we think of racial healing, we, we break it down. We break those two words down because we, we understand that healing is the process of making healthy again. We, we understand what healing is. And we look at the word racial, we look at the root word, which is race. Now we know as Christians, we know that God only made one race. Mm. We know that. But man, mm. 
man assigned values to humans based on skin color. So God made the human race, and then man assigned values based on skin color. And this has happened throughout time. But amazingly, we are in the birthplace of America. In Jamestown, Yorktown, Williamsburg, this is where it all started. This is the root of America. So this is where over 400 years ago, English colonists came here on a business trip. They were sent by a business, the Virginia Company of London. They were here looking for gold and other commodities. They found it. They found gold, but it wasn't the kind of gold they were looking for. It was tobacco. Tobacco became their gold. And they needed land. So they devalued the indigenous people, the Powhatan tribes, for the purpose of exploiting them. And they displaced them from, from their land to grow tobacco. And then they brought Africans here and they devalued the Africans based on their skin color to exploit their labor. But race, racism is a, and race is a man-made construct. The word race came about to be applied to humans in the 15th century, taken from a French dictionary, and the word race was principally applied to dog breeds before it started being applied to humans. And these Puritan settlers who came and decided to devalue black and brown-skinned bodies did so based upon theological commitments called the Hamitic curse. So there were theological implications to their politics that told them that those who did not have whiter bodies, white bodies, were cursed of God. At first, the indigenous people, if you read Columbus's own writings, at first, the indigenous people were kind of suspect as a possibility where they look a little more like us. Maybe they are a little more like us, but then, of course, were proven not to be like us, according to Columbus and others who came. And so this thread of valuing bodies based upon skin is something that has gone on for a long, long time. And it hurts us all. And so you talk about racial healing. And you talk about how racial healing impacts all of us. Tell us a little more about that. Okay, well, one, one of the people that I met in Williamsburg that was a very big influence in my life, um, his name is Bill Sizemore. And Bill Sizemore was actually a member of the Coming to the Table National Group. Uh, Coming to the Table has more than 50 chapters nationwide, and Bill was a member of Coming to the Table National. Uh, he was waiting for a Williamsburg group to get started. And when I started the, the local chapter here, the national director put me in touch with Bill. And what amazed me about Bill is that he had a heart to get involved. See, Bill had learned that his, his ancestors enslaved people. A lot of people know that their ancestors were enslavers. And they don't do anything about it. They just say, you know, it wasn't me. I didn't, I, I didn't do that. Or, you know, they take um, Senator Mitch McConnell's approach. Mitch McConnell said, well, there's, there's no one here today that's enslaved, and there's no one here today that enslaved anyone. So let's just forget about it. But Bill didn't forget about it. Bill went out looking for the descendants of the people his family enslaved. He took action, and he found them. And interestingly, their last name was Sizemore, too. They had the same last name, and they, they, uh, many of them lived near his, his ancestors' old home. So they were in the same town. 
And Bill formed authentic relationships with them. He got to know them. He invited them to, to, their fam to his family reunion. He came to their family reunion. And he even wrote a book. His, this is his book. It's called Uncle George and Me. It's a great book. Two Southern Families Confront a Legacy of Slavery. Here's his Uncle George. Um, there's on the back cover. And then he donated the proceeds from book sales to a scholarship fund for the descendants of the, the people that his family enslaved. So that, that was really moving for me. And it brought a lot of healing into Bill's life. Healing he didn't even realize he needed. Absolutely. And I think a lot of times, I often remember the words of Jesus when he's talking to the Pharisees, and I was telling somebody this earlier, when they were wondering why Jesus was hanging out with all the folks he was hanging out with that didn't get included, and Jesus would say, well, the righteous doesn't need a doctor, but the sick do. And I don't read Jesus saying, hey, you Pharisees are all good, so y'all don't, don't have a sickness. I hear Jesus being a little salty in that take. But he's like, well, those who think they're all right, they don't need a doctor. But those who recognize they're not all right, they need a doctor. And I think a lot of times what stunts this conversation from moving forward and what stunts us from action is not recognizing that the legacies and the harms and the aftermath of racial injustice in our country hurts all of us. I realized that as a pastor many years ago when I started pastoring a church that wasn't just white people. And I would listen to how neighbors and, and brothers and sisters in our church who were not white were experiencing various forms of being followed around in grocery stores, being pulled over, being questioned, having those kind of things take place. And even though we have, and you can't see it here now, we have a significant number of Asian students in our congregation who during the Asian, the uprising of Asian hate with COVID and the false narratives associated had water bottles thrown at them from the streets right along the side of Richmond Road. We know that there's anti-Semitism, which Laura talked about in the first gathering, where signs have been posted um, at the Helena Center and in other places in Williamsburg, Virginia. We have them here. We know that we've had members in our congregation try to be recruited from the Ku Klux Klan coming out of other areas in this town. I had to meet with a task force because I was walking with a guy out of the Aryan Brotherhood who didn't want to be Aryan in his life anymore coming out of prison, had to meet with a task force and be told about all the white nationalist groups that could possibly put people at harm. It is alive and well, and the healing is needed. Mm -hmm. So what then, Laura, do you want the church, particularly our church, to know about this racial healing? Well, the important thing is to get involved where you are. I mean, not everybody's going to be able to write a book. <laughs> um, Bill is a retired uh, Virginian pilot reporter, so... He, he, he wrote for a living, but not all of us can do that. But we can get involved in programs. We can establish authentic relationships with people. And we can ensure that we are part of the solution mm. and not, not part of the problem. Right. And the other thing is we can, we can stop distancing ourselves mm. um, I, earlier, I shared about uh, a friend of mine. She was actually a coworker. She was a white woman who, you know, I, I, we were friends. And I was going through a, a racial uh, incident. And at work, I was, I was being discriminated against. And I came to work, and she was gone. She had um, been assigned to another department. And years later, when I saw her, she, she told me that um, she, she asked to be reassigned. And I thought about it, and I said, wow, how did her being reassigned, seeing what I was dealing with and, you know, going through with, um, I had my, I had complained about racial discrimination, and my employee mailbox was vandalized. My employee locker was vandalized. 
and it happened many years ago, but I can't believe it still, you know, affects me. But yeah, and she knew what was going on, and she, she, she asked to be reassigned. And it really was because she didn't want to see it. She knew racism existed, but she didn't want to see it up front and, you know, in her face. And there are many people like that. We know no racism existed. You may have even had coworkers or seen it happen in your neighborhood or in your sphere of influence, but just turned a blind eye and didn't want to uh, get involved. So she distanced herself. And that didn't help me at all, but she didn't have to see it. And that happens um, a lot. Yeah, I agree. I, um, I often think of how God could have just said to us, hey, y'all did this to yourselves. This is your problem. This whole sin thing. And so y'all need to get right or I'm going to judge all of you. But then I think, and I think about how God could have done that, but how God decided to come as one of us, come to us, to not distance himself from us, but God drew closer to us. And what is strange to me when I think about my life is how God has called Christians to do the same, to not distance ourselves from the harms that are created in society, to not ignore them, and to not even say, well, hey, we had a black president, so we're a post-racial society. To not be so loose-tongued, and sometimes, if I may even say so, lack a sense of humility. Um, to distance ourselves from harms. We're actually called to charge the suffering with the hope of the gospel. That's why we're called peacemakers, not peacekeepers. We're to enter into hard places and make peace. And it really dawned on me as I became one of the pastors of what is now a multiracial and multicultural, multiethnic, diverse, generationally congregation, where what doesn't affect me, I learn, affects my brothers and sisters. And what I've learned from Scripture is what happens to one of you is happening to me. Because Jesus said, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've what? Finish it. You've done to me. And I appreciate Virginia Racial Healing Institute being in existence, Lauren, for your leadership in this community and for you leading coming to the table and creating a space where you don't do this with antagonism in your heart, despite your own story. But you do so with a peacemaker's heart. You tell the truth and you do so with boldness, but you do so with gentleness. You invite us to the table. Look, if you want to have these conversations, if you want to learn how to talk about this clumsy conversation of race, and racial healing, uh, then come to coming to the table on Tuesday night and learn to dialogue, listen to people's stories, listen to people's experiences and recognize that your own experience may not be their experiences, but that's because you live in your own body in a social location that keeps you from those experiences. Does that make sense? I'll never forget in my neighborhood when Allison and I were in the adoption process, we had Ian and we were looking to adopt and we were called that we were going to get a biracial child uh, into our home and this child was going to be of darker skin and it was right around Trayvon Martin being killed and all the association with the hoodie. And I remember thinking to myself uh, how on my Facebook group I had seen a post um, about a new family who had moved in and I kid you not, the post said, and they don't look like they live here. And I knew what the family, where the family lived. And I was like, oh, they're, they're, they're a black family. And I remember looking at Allison saying, we're going to have to have different thoughts because Ian can walk around our neighborhood with a hoodie, no problem. But Trayvon Martin couldn't walk around anyone. And I don't know if ours will be able to do the same. It's a different world. And it's a different world than what we sometimes imagine it to be. And we learn what the world is when we start listening from the bodies of others. And frankly, Christians have, as the core of our faith, a commitment to do that because we have a God who put a body on to come in a body for the bodies that he created. And we're called to do the same. And so there are many ways. We have racial trauma trainings um, that are led by white and black bodies. We have 
uh, the book club. We have these, these programs. We have coming to the table. There are many ways. You need to know that Virginia Racial Healing Institute is a supported mission of this church. It is a part of the work of the gospel and of reconciliation. And you need to know that the legacy of this church from the very first founding of our congregation, when in our city, integration or desegregation was called to be worked out in our community, that the leaders of our church, all white male leaders, in the minutes recorded in the history of our church, voted unanimously. And it says, so that there would be no question that any black or brown neighbor is 100% welcomed into this congregation. It is a part of the ongoing work of the gospel in this community that our leaders of this church were a part of a citywide initiative to bring white and black youth together in 1969. So if you're a member of this church and this conversation tweaks you or you may sit there and say, why are we having this conversation? There goes Fred talking about it again. Two things. I say this with all love and gentleness. Please rethink that and look around the room. This is our family we're talking about. This isn't a political issue. And then two, and I do not say this lightly, we're going to keep doing the work because it is gospel. We're going to. So join in and find ways to stay. Or find some place where you can be more comfortable. There are, I think, 62 other churches to choose from in this community. We have to press on. We just have to. Thank you for leading us to press on. Thank you for your leadership. Give Lord. You're welcome. I think of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's words, and by the way, I, I, I feel it's important to remember that he's Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. A lot of times we just think of him as Dr. Martin Luther King. He's Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. That's how he always was referred to. And I think of a, pre a sermon he preached just before he was murdered, and it was called A Christmas Sermon on Peace. And I think of these words that he said, and by the way, in this text, he uh, closes this sermon with his, I still have a dream speech, but only after he spends a couple of paragraphs talking about how that dream turned into a nightmare. But before he even talks about that, he says this, it really boils down to this, that all life is interrelated. We are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied into a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. We are made to live together because of the interrelated structure of reality. Did you ever stop to think that you can't leave for your job in the morning without being dependent on most of the world? You get up in the morning and go to the bathroom and reach over for the sponge, and that is handed to you by a Pacific Islander. You reach for a bar of soap, and that's given to you at the hands of a Frenchman. And then you go into the kitchen and drink your coffee for the morning, and that's poured into your cup by a South American. And maybe you want tea. That's poured into your cup by the Chinese. Or maybe you're desirous of having cocoa for breakfast, and that's poured into your cup by a West African. And then you reach over for your toast, and that's given to you at the hands of an English-speaking farmer, not to mention the baker. And before you finish eating breakfast in the morning, you're dependent upon more than half of the world. This is the way our universe is structured. This is its interrelated quality. We aren't going to have peace on earth until we recognize this basic fact of the interrelated structure of all reality. And that makes great sense to me of a God who would come and put brown skin on at a time 
and say to the entire world that no matter whatever skin you carry upon those bones that I formed together in your mother's womb, you are welcome to the table. That the Christ who said in the, in the spirit of Paul and then the apostle Paul who wrote in a text and said, in Christ there's neither Jew or Greek, male and female, slave or free, because all are one in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ are clothed with Christ. What Paul is not saying is that our gender differences and our racial differences and our ethnic and even socioeconomic differences are somehow miraculously done away with. What he's saying is those, ident- those differences that have become identity markers that are primary are now secondary in the kingdom of God to the primary identity marker of our baptism. And that we all come to the table because of our baptismal identities. <laughs> That's it. But when we do, it is our responsibility to speak into a society that treats our brother or sister in any way lesser simply because of those secondary markers. And it is the witness of the church to not just commit to truth-telling, but truth embodiment. And recognize that we're going to lose some friends along the way. Maybe even some family members. But Ahmaud Arbery's mother lost a son. George Floyd's daughter lost a father. We can lose some friends. Because Jesus has built a bigger table and invited us all to that table where all are welcomed. But we can't be at this table if we're going to do harm to one another or others. And we need to think very carefully about being at this table if we're going to turn a blind eye to the harm that is being done to those who are with us around this table. We are called to build a bigger table, even one where there's room for our enemies. And that is what makes Christianity so incredibly provocative. And that's what can bring liberation to the world. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.